Hello everyone and welcome to BrainX Talks. This is yet another episode of our podcast and I am your host Ashish Khanna along with your co-host Alok Kothari. Hello everyone. I come to you from Cleveland, Ohio. We hope to make this a podcast about conversations with leading figures at the crossroads of machine learning and healthcare. Let me introduce myself quickly. I have spent more than 10 years in the field of machine learning doing research and development all over the world. And I'm hoping to use my background in machine learning to engage our podcast guests in interesting conversations. Ashish. And I come to you all from a slightly warmer and sunnier Winston-Salem, North Carolina. By profession, I am an intensivist and anesthesiologist, and I spend most of my time in research, education, and innovation centered around perioperative and critical care medicine and outcomes research related to the same. I am also one of the founding members of the BrainX Group, and today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Bart Geertz, who is, believe it or not, joining us all the way from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Welcome, Bart. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you, Alok. Let me get into the the very long bio that Bart um, has and, and a very accomplished career. I'd probably warn you all ahead of time that whatever I say right now is is pretty much a a microchip of of really what Bart has achieved. But I want you all to focus on the multidimensionality of this man's career. Let me start by saying that he's an anesthetist and intensive care physician and clinical pharmacologist from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And he's also an academic researcher with an interest in cardiovascular physiology and perioperative process optimization. Bart has done lots and lots of research and innovation. And his aim has really been to achieve better outcomes by enabling more proactive provision of care and getting more insights from existing data. So data being the center point of Bart's academic career, he recently started something called healthplus.ai, and we'll definitely be talking about healthplus.ai in our conversation today. This group is a startup of eight people that is currently performing clinical trials in three European sites to study the impact of a machine learning tool called the Periscope. And the Periscope predicts infections after surgery in adults. Bart is hoping to make a dent, obviously, in one of the major problems that occur in post-surgical care, which is post-operative infections. Certainly, there are others as well, and we'll be getting into some of them today during the podcast. And then Bart says that he is not a data scientist, but tries to build bridges between clinical challenges, medical research, and artificial intelligence. Building and testing technologies to support the professional to, to support the professional means that the problem itself needs to be clear for the technical expert. And, and what I'm really excited about today is the discussion of Dr. Bart Geertz and his group's work on the very famous hypotension prediction index software with the collaboration of Edwards Life Sciences, the work that was published in the JAMA in last year. Bart is also now working on the prediction of acute care needs for the emergency room using publicly available data also using retinal scans to predict and diagnose chronic disease. So <laughs> there was a lot there, right? But 
let me, I'm, I'm going to take a pause here. And before I give it back to Alok, Bart Geertz has an MD, PhD in intensive care medicine, and an MSc in biomedical sciences from the Leiden University in the Netherlands, and an MBA from the IE University in Madrid, Spain. Wow. That took, that, that really tested me. Alok, it's over to you. <laughs> Yes, there's an incredible resume. And besides being famous for one of the first uh, users of artificial intelligence to do intraoperative hypotension prediction, Bart's model was recently used for predicting new COVID cases ahead of time in Netherlands, and that was used to target new public health measures. It actually resulted in the number of cases decreasing per zip code in Netherlands. So some recent work, which is also very exciting, and just offline, he told me that a lot of this work was open source and in the public domain. So would love to know more about Dr. Bart and would love for him to tell us what his journey was from being a physician to founding Helpless AI. Well, thank you both. Um, it's, uh, it's sad that you can't see me blushing, but <laughs> thank you very much for that introduction. I, I would love to say that all, all of that was planned, but I think actually I just moved from what I found interesting to another thing that I found interesting. So if, you, if you're asking me, how did you end up working um, with data scientists and, and looking at these problems? I think it's fair to say that I was, I really like doing research, but I also love being part of a solution that other people can use. And writing a paper doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. So that was for me really the, the, the reason to to go out there and, and look at other technical solutions and see how I can uh, become a part of that. So I very naively walked into uh, some other uh, parts of the university and started looking for experts that, that could help me with that or I could help them. And lo and behold, I found that we had some world-leading professors there like Max Welling that were actually doing some great stuff, but they were actually lacking the medical expertise. And they were actually getting their data from other parts of the world and not even as close by as their own uh, hospital around the corner. So that for me really was the start. I see. And can you can you describe what Health Plus AI actually does? Yeah. So ultimately, I ended up working part time in this in this other in the startup that was uh, Max Wellings. It's called Cypher, mm -hmm. which is now part of Qualcomm. And they were really focusing on AI consultancy. And, and ultimately, that made me figure out that building one-offs wasn't what I was looking for, but really looking at building something scalable. And for me, machine learning or AI in general has uh, the potential to reuse existing data, provide solutions, but actually decrease costs other than just looking at better outcomes. So it's really the, more the full package. So that basically allowed me to set out and, and two and a half years back, three years back, start Health Plus AI. Let me jump in here. If I'm a patient, I come into the hospital, what will Health Plus AI specifically do for me and how can I use Health Plus AI? Yes. So we're 100% focused on surgical care. So what we do is we reuse existing electronic health record data to predict infections. So nowadays, the one in four, one to five patients will get an infections within 30 days after their surgery. And that means that they stay in the hospital two and two and a half times longer than normal. One third of the patients will actually have a chronic infection. So that's basically the recovery gets a, to be prolonged as well. So what we do is we predict the infection, allow physicians to act early, maybe even preventively, and by doing that, reduce the impact of the infection and actually improve length of stay, 
outcomes. And hopefully, and that's what we're trying to do in these clinical trials, prove that we actually reduce the number of infections. So really enabling this proactive approach from physicians and nurses uh, to treat these patients. So I have a quick follow-up for you over there. I'm going to wear my clinical researcher hat and ask you, all of this sounds great, but do you have any trials that have actually shown that this early prediction of post-operative infections using this you know, algorithm or software is actually making a difference in outcome? Straightforward answer is no, not yet. So we've shown that at the end of the surgery, which is on average five days before the average diagnosis, we are 90% accurate in teasing out which patient will get an infection, which one won't. That being said, we still have to, to actually provide it and actually see what the outcome will be if you start using this. So we've just launched the tool in Leiden, and we're launching it next in Radboud. Um, and now we're basically starting with the surgical population and building it out towards other populations in the same hospital. And that way we do a before-after trial, basically looking at what the impact is. Do we see a change in behavior in terms of monitoring, in terms of treatments, and do we actually see a reduction in length of stay and the number of people getting an infection? I see. And I was very curious about the kind of machine learning models that you actually use. Yeah. Well, I think to be fair, and I don't want to spoil the atmosphere here, but the biggest challenge really is the lack of standardization among or between hospitals of the data and even within the hospital. So the biggest challenge is actually the data engineering and not as much the models. So the problem of an infection, especially if you have larger data sets to train it on or retrain it on, um, is actually linear models that actually have a pretty decent performance. But it's uh, really the data engineering that is, I think, the real challenge for now. And is the reason you use linear models are because they are more interpretable also? Or did you consider yes. and did yes. you consider other models as well? We we will surely start using more complicated models. But indeed the one of the challenges that we've also been given is that you ultimately need to show what you're doing um, and give some feedback on why you gave these predictions. So that's a very good reason to do it. And that's also because you need to take the physician on that journey to take a different action than that would normally do. So I think that's that's why we start there. But also really simple things. The more complex the model, the longer it will take to do the predictions uh, and the less, well, less the service is or the more you need to increase the cost of providing that service. So that's another reason. So Bart, I'm going to take you into some, you know, real world issues with handling EHR data and especially data around hemodynamics, which, you know, you and, and I share a passion for. I, I have personally done some work where we've tried to look at commercially available EHR data here in the United States. And one of the biggest shortcomings of ICU hemodynamics specifically is the fact that the blood pressure numbers that you get to build your model or to do some basic associations is only blood pressure that has been recorded and verified by a bedside nurse, nurse verified blood pressure readings. In the, in the best of papers that, that have been published looking at ICU data, you know, every one blood pressure reading an hour, maybe one blood pressure reading in, in half an hour, right? And you and I know that that is not the case. An, an ICU patient is very dynamic. Things can change all the time. 
blood pressure is being recorded second to second or several times a minute and is actually stored locally. But in most hospital systems, at least here in the U.S., all of that locally stored hemodynamic data is basically thrown into the garbage can after about 72 hours. So this is a huge problem, right? I mean, we, we try and make all these models. We try and look at these big data sets. But the blood pressure numbers we have are highly non-granular and maybe inaccurate. What is your vision? How can we better store and clean hemodynamic data? And a follow-up question to that is, you know, maybe that is being done in some parts of the world right now, but then how can we make all of that clean hemodynamic data, high-fidelity hemodynamic data, more open source and available to the rest of the world so people can collaborate? Yeah, all, all good questions. And I, I think to start with your last part of the question, I think there are some initiatives now that show what might be the future that's really sharing all that data with peers wherever they are in the world, be it the MIMIC data set being now the Amsterdam UMC data set. Uh, that is accessible at no cost. And so I think that is the future. But we do have to deal, especially here in Europe, with new regulation that is blocking us or really making it hard for everyone to actually pursue this goal, which I think it will benefit the larger population, will uh, will benefit everyone. But if you have to, to do this, if you want to put in Europe, put this type of data online, you have to go through an army of lawyers. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, I do tell you that it's a, it's a, it's a big effort. So that, I think that's one of the things that we have to deal with. So we need to, in this part of the world, need to have exemptions from the law that are more clear for healthcare and give us clearer guidelines on how we can actually share this. Because like I said, I think we'll all benefit. The, the other end of the spectrum is, of course, on the local level, we need to be more aware of what kind of data we are storing. I mean, I can't imagine that we will validate or ask nurses to validate blood pressures every minute. I think they already have a hard hard time doing their job right now. So we don't want to make it harder. But it, I, I think it will start with actually capturing that data. So at Amsterdam UMC, we've started doing that. We didn't even want to look at the one minute data that we are storing in the electronic health record, but actually looking at at the sensor and how it's actually recorded there. So we actually have 100 hertz data coming in for all vital signs, and we save that to our server and then actually match it to our electronic health record. So that also allows us to actually touch that or validate that with the blood pressure measurements at the time they're actually validated by the nurse at the bedside. So that gives us a first validation step, maybe not for all of the data, but certainly these points in between. The other thing is that we started accruing libraries in, uh, that allow us to actually handle the data and process it in such a way that we can actually extract or at least highlight where we think the blood pressure is not correctly uh, recorded and there's, a, there's someone drawing blood or, or whatever's happening there. So I think these things, and especially if we start sharing those libraries as well with other data scientists, with other centers, then it really gets more interesting. And we start taking away all of the hard work that needs to go, go into curating such data set to actually be able to, to use it. And there still remains the labeling of events. I think that is the biggest challenge ultimately. 
you can set up the pipelines and, and all the infrastructure that you need in software and processes to get all that high granular data and even put it out there. But then it comes down to labeling the data in such a way that it gets to be used the way that we want it. If we want to predict whether we are normally inclined at any point in time to give some kind of drug, we need to be really sure that that drug was actually given at that point in time. That's, I think, a challenge that we still is very hard and requires a lot of manual work uh, and, and guesstimations, really. This is great. You know, I am excited by the fact that your institutions and, and the healthcare system is at, at least partially invested in helping you develop these libraries, store the data, get the resources to store the data. And, and Bart, just for you know the benefit of our listeners, we all know that hemodynamic data is great. We want to get more high-fidelity hemodynamic data. But in isolation, hemodynamic data is probably not the answer, right? So a patient in the ICU, it's great to know you know, blood pressure under certain thresholds for certain durations of time, do some areas under the curve. But it would be better to know when the patient got hypotensive, what was he or she doing on mechanical ventilation, how much PEEP they had, what kind of FiO2, did they have ARDS, for example. In the end, a stream of hemodynamic data is incomplete without a stream of other data. Is that your collection system where you pretty much have pipelines for all sorts of data. Exactly. Fully agree with you. Boring answer, but yes. I mean, I just mentioned the byline then, and then we match it to the EHR. That's where it starts. I think that's where it starts getting to be interesting. Of course, we also want to talk to other departments. Do we know anything about the genome of this patient? or the bio, can we look at a bit further away imaging? And all those things can be interesting somewhere for, for some question that we might have. So I think ultimately we need to really build biobanks in, in an extensive fashion and really put that all together so the timelines are correct and we can start annotating and make it worthwhile analyzing it. Yeah, this gets really fascinating. I want to, again, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, a, a lot of whom are, are, are not doctors, I, Hypotension prediction certainly, you know, has been your major contribution to this field. Do you do you believe there is value in prediction of respiratory compromise, for example? Do you believe there is value in prediction of, you know, you talked about infection certainly, but do you believe there is value in prediction of other cardiorespiratory events? and problems and and have you done some of those as well so i'm 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 working on a number of these issues but i think uh, a lot of people have already shown that predicting well for covid it's i think it's really obvious you would want to know when you're admitting a covid patient whether he or she will be that person that will decline and will not take the trajectory that you would want and actually needs icu admission and you would want to find out before you are in an emergency situation where you need to intubate this patient. And, and maybe if you give high flow oxygen, that might actually lead you away from, uh, and you give it early, lead you away from this ICU admission. So I think a lot of what we're doing is reactive. I know that 35% of the cost that we have in hospital care in Europe is related to treatment of complications. And I think a, a large part of the problem there is that at least the extent uh, which the complications are when they are noticed 
is due to data latency, due to systems and data overload. So if we get a signal early, it allows us to at least potentially intervene, review the patient, adapt monitoring, and, and maybe even provide a treatment that either reduces the problem or, or doesn't, or leads to a situation where the problem doesn't occur at all. So that's a very, very interesting background into basically constraints around data and regulatory issues that, that help or hurt application of AI. And uh, I was wondering, despite all of that, right, what has been very satisfying case that the AI predicted for you and why was it exciting? Yeah, well, I think, so really using HPI in, in theater, I remember a case where a younger patient was getting general anesthesia. HPI started alarming a number of times. You treat it, um, we all thought it was a preload issue. But what it basically did, HPI, because it alarmed again and again in a younger patient that we didn't assume would even get an event, was that you reviewed even more closely. And because you're really looking at what's going on here, we thought, well, actually here, it might actually be a contractility issue. And someone that's barely 30 years old, getting general anesthesia, not a big procedure. I think I would have never looked even considered giving dobutamine, although that patient needed only briefly. But it's the fact that HPI was there allowed me to review the patient more carefully, I would even say, to put myself out there and, and consider a different line of therapy than I would have normally done. And what, what it made me really see is that in a number or a, like 5% of, of cases or situations, we would give fluids or giving some noradrenaline, or, but not consider that contractility was the issue in really straightforward cases. I think so that for me was a, was a first. But, and if you step back a little bit more, it was for me, the, the really bringing it home for me was the remark by one of the anesthetic nurses telling me, I didn't trust it at all, but it just showed that it worked in, in this patient. So I, I used it on my next case and then the, and the case after that look at how I gave anesthesia, little titrations, tramp track anesthesia. So really vital signs quite where they should be. And that person was really, really happy with that. So really showing that the proactiveness worked for that professional. And that's what really for me was like, okay, I did pe like goal-directed therapy lessons a lot in, in, in the clinic. So really telling people, this is how you optimize the patients. Compliance was really not there because you're starting tell professionals what they need to do, be condescending maybe even. And this was just this tool and they actually did what, what, what should have been done. And they did it out of their own, back, going back to their own training and using this proactive alarm. At least that, that's how I see it now. So that for me was really rewarding, whether that answers your question, bringing it back to a patient, but I think that really demonstrates it. It, it does, it does. Absolutely, Bart. It does certainly answer the question, and thank you for sharing that story. We need more stories like this in clinical practice where, I will tell you again, wearing my clinician-scientist hat, sometimes, you know, we write all these high-impact papers that get published in the best of places, but, but there is this division between the clinical doctor versus the researcher and there is a lack of adoption of technology or or something that you have actually proven in a very well done trial and i think the the biggest problem for the lack of adoption is the lack of 
success stories like the one you just narrated. So we, we really need stories like this that will reinforce that machines are not fighting us or taking our place. Machines are, are truly helping clinicians. With those words, I'm going to actually introduce our listeners to something that, you know, personally has has had me really interested and, and I'm so excited to talk to you about this today. So for all our listeners, in February 2020, Dr. Geertz was involved very heavily in the publication of the HYPE randomized clinical trial, which is the effect of a machine learning derived early warning system for intraoperative hypotension versus standard of care on depth and duration of intraoperative hypotension during elective non-cardiac surgery. And, you know, this trial really caught my eye. I have personally done a lot of work where I've shown intraoperative hypotension has a strong association with poor postoperative outcomes. And here, Dr. Geertz and his group suggested that the use of the HPI technology would very significantly reduce the median time of hypotension per patient. Looks like eight minutes in the intervention group versus 32 minutes in the control group, which even for your average duration of surgery, which was about four hours, is still very significant. Is that how I should interpret that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So we were, were lucky to be one of the first to do this trial. And, and indeed, it's a small trial, to be fair. I think in, in most situations, it wouldn't go into YAMA at all. We're just lucky to be one of the first doing such a study with, with a machine learning derived algorithm. And we also haven't been heavily uh, into hypotension research prior to running that trial. So I think that also, if you if you look at other trials and maybe giving it away a bit already, is that we are very average in how we provide anesthetic care in terms of hemodynamic monitoring and in terms of how good our, our averages are also for hypertension. But Bart, tell me a little bit about the story behind this trial. So, you know, you've done prediction modeling. You are invested mentally, academically in this space. And you're right in saying that, you know, and it's just not you, I think, all over the world. Again, you know, to all my anesthesiologist colleagues, we can do a much better job in handling hypotension intraoperatively. But what got you interested? What's the backstory? And if you look back at this trial, why is it that you had this kind of an outcome? What is the biggest driver of this outcome for the clinical doctor? So what set us out to do this trial was really the fact that we had this background in in perioperative gold record therapy. How can we optimize fluids? Really protocol-driven, hard to get compliance, doing 200 lectures and not getting everyone on the same page. And then came this, this parameter, HPI, which was basically, the way I saw it, engineered in such a way that we could actually become proactive and, and also with this display when I was there, going back to the way we were trained. So that made me think, okay, so we've seen these trials with low blood pressure being, being highly correlated to adverse outcomes. And also knowing that in anesthesia during this period where people during surgery really get this deficit in oxygen where they are hurt and we can actually provide 
care in such a way that we can actually benefit the patient. So we can make an impact even during these couple of hours. So these things all combined made us set out to do this trial and at least do the first step. I mean, ultimately, you always want to go go the go the whole way and, and show that it changes outcome. So that's, of course, where we want to go. And that's where we're going with the trials that are now ongoing. But baby steps. First step is actually showing that we impact the way people provide care. So do we change behavior? Is the algorithm uh, and how it's displayed changing behavior with our colleagues? And then does it actually lead to hypotension being reduced? So actually the, the setup, and I think that doesn't really come out of the, of the publication, we actually started with 100 patients where we one third of them actually went into a basically passive phase where no one was actually looking at the screen, could see the screen to tease out what the Hawthorne effect would more or less be. So merely what is the focus on blood pressure? What's that doing on the way people treat the patient? So we didn't say anything. So we could compare that group with the actual conventional group where it was obvious that there was a goal and, and the goal was to keep blood pressure above 65 millions of mercury material blood pressure. So we wanted to tease out Hawthorne effect. And then, so again, pilot study, basically. And we didn't expect the results to come back that that well to show that HPI had that impact. And then we wanted to do the, the, the randomization and, and basically see what the impact was. So again, we didn't expect it to be that clear, and, and we were happy to, do, to see that. But I think that that's just the first step towards actually showing the outcome difference, that biomarkers are different between the groups. Yeah, I think this has really set the stage and, and you well know that people are trying now to use this algorithm technology in other non-cardiac surgery populations, in hopefully cardiac surgical populations, in critical care. I think the the opportunities are endless, but like you've said, I think you call it a pilot trial. I, I'll say that you guys did a phenomenal job and what you have given the word is a great platform from where all of us who believe in the value of defending a map and and doing anything to defend a map also believe in the fact that there is a process to defend a map an inotrope a vasopressor a fluid will be will be able to do it properly so congratulations once more on on all of this i'm going to ask you a final question and then some final questions from alok my final question is you've become an entrepreneur, right? So how did the, all of this happen? So, and what is your advice to physicians who want to be an entrepreneur or who want to be at least part of their career? Um, they want to de- dedicate it to entrepreneurship. Yeah, thank you. It's been a journey for sure. And for me, the reason to start on that journey was working. Well, I think part of that was working on this trial and, and seeing the potential, but also the fact that I see that in these large corporations that are working on these type of solutions, be it Philips, be it Outwards, be it whatever bigger firms are working in this area, there were just too few physicians working there. Too few in a sense that the problem and the definition of the problem are not always clear when they start on such a project uh, and building such a product. So I think that for me is really cold to arms for all physicians and nurses if they can work on on these types of, of things. Because you can share your problem with the people that actually can provide you with a solution. And I just see too little help in there as of yet. 
And also it allows us from, from the health perspective to really guide where the solutions are going. So I think there's a real role for us in a way. And you can do that even part-time. But I think there's a lot of added value for companies to, when they build a product, from beginning to end, defining the problem, but also how does the screen need to look like? What kind of alarms do I want to get? But even the performance of such a model, is it, do we need a high negative predictive value, positive predictive value, that kind of thing. So it's the whole range of, of steps that need to be taken to get there, even the definition of, of how you frame it towards the FDA or uh, CE marking. I think the, the healthcare professional can be of help. So that that was the first. And then the other thing was, of course, I, I, I thought it was great building a, your own organization. I think looking back, I did really underestimate the regulatory side and that, what that all implies. So I don't know whether I would do it again, to be fair, but it, it's a good learning. You basically learn a lot outside of medicine as well if you take a bigger role in, in developing a new product. And, it, and it's great to set up a team. It's great to to work together and learn of of, of people. Uh, and what they're doing. I mean, you learn a lot every day. Awesome. That's that's cue for my next question. Uh, it, it's uh, interesting to see your journey from a physician to an entrepreneur and getting a bigger sense of what happens beyond medicine to make AI in medicine happen. I was wondering whether you had a take on how does the future of healthcare and AI innovation look like in Europe with regard to how the regulation is changing and how more people like you are looking at a bigger role and where do you see all of this going? There's, there's a lot of um, moving parts at the moment, and the scope is really big. So, I, I mean, we were even in touch with people directly under the European Commissioner that actually looks at ethical guidelines around AI. I know that several governments within Europe are now rewriting their data protection laws to facilitate a bit more the research and development for data science because that's that's been a big bottleneck i think we've had some major delays without that type of regulation and more clarity on that regulation i think we would have gained about two years in 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 terms of development so our timing was completely off in that in that sense but i think that's that's changing i think COVID is doing a lot so again going back to this this small part of the world in the netherlands you see now that most icus are working together and actually look at not only around COVID, but now structurally share data to build models together. So they're building joint infrastructure across these 100 hospitals or so, and they're they're doing exactly the things that I mentioned uh, earlier. So you see that they're trying to scale um, solutions and the options to work together on the data. So that's that's really interesting to see. So I think you see some of those changes already. So where are we moving? I think across the world, not even in just in Europe, there is a lack of well-trained people in the face of the growing population that needs access to care or better care. So with less money, less staff, we need to provide better outcomes, better experience, even for ourselves um, as healthcare professionals. So I think technology cannot be not there. It's It needs to be there. We need the technical solutions for most of our problems. And AI, I think, is really scalable, can be a really scalable um, and cheap solution in most of these areas. And what it will do, I think, is make us more proactive. Not, but not only that, it will make us come come to diagnosis more quickly, more reliably. It will help the performance of the average physician, if you want. So it will make the quality standards go up. It makes It will have a quality system in the background. For now, I don't see complete 
systems taking over functions that physicians would do completely. But I do see that we need them to actually cope with all the tests that are being done. Um, just looking at the sheer number of CT scans, we cannot keep up. So we need tools like these to actually save radiologists a bit and, and help them do their jobs properly. So I think that that really shows where we need to go. I think it's not a matter of whether we want it. I think we need it. But the challenge will be in framing it in such a way that it's safe. But also, how can we speed up the process of getting there? I mean, new regulations being set out by the FDA and in Europe as well. I think that's good, but it can be clearer. If we want to keep it to be a cheaper solution, an affordable solution, throwing more in more barriers will make it more expensive to get there. And I think that's that's something we need to to be really careful of before we're looking at a new type of pharma industry. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Geert. That's a very well thought out answer. And I'll also like to thank all the listeners for, for listening to what was an incredible podcast. Yes. And Alok, uh, thank you. And Bart, thank you so very much. I will tell you that I will personally be listening to this over and over again, especially when I need inspiration to do more clinical research with big data and when I need inspiration to work in the hospital, work in the ICU, and and motivate people around me that technology is here to stay and it's only going to help us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for the time. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of BrainX Talks. For all interested, please come on over to our LinkedIn page to be a part of the BrainX community. It costs you nothing and adds so much more to what you can learn and do with big data and big data analytics. Also, look at brainxai.org for more information about the group. Drop us a line for collaborations, connections, research together, and innovation together. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and take care of yourself.